0: Hello and welcome to March 2024's Emergency Medicine Journals podcast. I'm Sarah Edwards.
1: And I'm Rick Boddy.
0: And welcome to this month's uh, collection of papers. And uh, apologies to the audience, I'm about to start night shift, so I'm slightly a bit sleepy this afternoon doing our recording. Uh, So hopefully I will be able to keep you entertained, to keep me entertained in preparation for this evening's night shift. And I think it seems fitting that we start with probably one of the most difficult diagnosis is that we make and one that we don't see very often in the ED, and that's aortic dissection. So, Rick?
1: Yeah, well, I've got a couple of papers on acute aortic syndromes today. In fact, in the issue, there's even more than that. There's a feast of papers on aortic dissection. The first one I'm going to talk about is from Ontario in Canada. And this is a study led by Robert Ola, which looks at the factors associated with a missed diagnosis of acute aortic syndrome when we say acute aortic syndrome, we mean aortic dissection, intramural hematoma or a penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer. So just to get that clear, first of all, and if you're anything like me, acute aortic syndrome is one of those diagnoses that fills you with fear because you really don't want to miss it. Is that Does that resonate with you, Sarah?
0: Yeah, it's the one that when my juniors come and talk to me about patients and I'm like, so have you thought about aortic dissection? And they're like, Uh, no, and, well, we need to think about it with, you know, the right context and the right presentation, of course.
1: Yeah, and we hear so much about the potential to miss this diagnosis because it's quite easy to do, it's rare, it's hugely important because it kills people and is associated with a massive amount of morbidity, and it's really difficult to pick up. So I think that's why we are so afraid of missing it. There's that Think Aorta campaign, which I was privileged to uh, provide a tiny bit of advice for right at the beginning, but it's really lifted off a campaign led by Catherine Fowler, whose dad had a misdiagnosis of an acute aortic syndrome. And uh, she's really done a great job of raising awareness about missed aortic syndromes. I'm sure you've heard of that one, Sarah. It's been national as a campaign.
0: Yeah, no, it's been uh, really important and impactful to remind people about what is a rare but significantly life-threatening condition. And um, for our listeners out there, um, the Archem learning team, so the Royal College of Emergency Medicines podcast team have done an amazing um, aorta special that's worth looking through there. Um, archives for with a true first-hand account of of what happens um, with an acute aortic syndrome and from the patient's perspective and, and that diagnosis are really worth a listen there.
1: Absolutely. So I'll take you through this retrospective study that helps us to understand a bit more about the factors that are associated with a missed diagnosis. So it was a large retrospective study They took a 15-year series of patients who'd presented to the emergency department and they had a coded diagnosis consistent with an acute aortic syndrome. They then defined a missed acute aortic syndrome as patients who had presented to the ED in the two weeks prior to that index event where they were diagnosed with an acute aortic syndrome. They also looked at patients who were admitted or who had been given a coded diagnosis of acute aortic syndrome when they died. So they got those patients too. There's a little bit of an assumption that, you know, these cases were missed, but they presented in the previous two weeks. So it's as good as we can get, I guess. And they included 1,299 cases, of which 163 were missed on the first presentation. So that's a miss rate of 12.5%. So we're missing one in eight acute aortic syndromes according to this study. So that's the first thing that's important. It's quite a, quite a high miss rate. And the second thing that they did is looked at what factors were associated with missing the diagnosis. Now, more cases that were missed were were ambulatory. So the patients were up and about. Uh, And I guess that sort of plays to our sort of confirmation bias, if you like. You see a patient who's up and about and walking rather than on a trolley. And you maybe think that aortic dissection is not so likely. Well, it seems that we miss those more often. The patients were also more likely to have comorbidities. So they had a higher Charlton index if they were missed. And I guess that's important because we've got to be aware that the the, the more complex the patient's past history, the more it might cloud our judgment about whether this patient has an acute aortic syndrome. Uh, The patients were less likely to be missed if they went to a cardiac centre or a teaching hospital. Um, Now, the really interesting thing here was what happened when they looked at mortality. So were the patients who were missed more likely to die? And they weren't, interestingly. So the mortality rate was 54% in the missed cases versus 59% in the non-missed cases. Now, it's important to point out that the patients who weren't missed were sicker. And that's what you'd expect, because the cases are more obvious. So we're missing the milder cases. That being so, I wouldn't read too much into the fact that the mortality rate wasn't different. It does agree with previous studies, which have shown a non-significant increase in mortality in the missed cases, uh, but uh, shouldn't reassure us that it's okay to miss this diagnosis. Uh, So, I mean, interesting findings overall. The most interesting one to me was the fact that we missed one in eight cases, Sarah.
0: Yeah, I was thinking back, actually. So I remember... Oh, probably about a decade ago, the first aortic dissection I had. And the story was a gentleman in their late 60s, early 70s that literally had two seconds of tearing central chest pain, carried on playing his round of golf, walked into our emergency department going, I just don't feel right, doctor. Had a whole aortic arch dissection all the way down. And again, that really plays into that confirmation bias. And I often use that as an example when I teach because actually that is more often the case that I see. It's a very short history. You know, the sick ones are easy to spot, isn't it, as as you're saying. Um, so it doesn't surprise me, but also equally worries me. But then it is a very small needle in a huge haystack isn't it to try and find this diagnosis and it's not clear-cut.
1: Yeah absolutely and it, my, my own personal experience is that these cases present in such heterogeneous ways. The ones that I'm aware of that have had delayed diagnoses have often had neurological symptoms for example where you know people might be expecting a tearing sudden chest pain that radiates to the back with a different BP in both arms but actually it's those really unusual symptoms associated with aortic dissection that can cause us not to suspect it in the first place. And I guess the one thing that we really worry about when this happens is that the patient will die and will end up in the coroner's court. And that leads us on to the next paper where you've had a look at a paper doing a thematic analysis of deaths relating to emergency medicine.
0: Yeah, so um, sadly, um, some of these cases uh, end up in coroner's court, and and this paper, which is titled Thematic Analysis of Prevention of Future Death Reports Related to Emergency Departments in England and Wales, 2013 to 2022. So this paper um, is looking at, in England and Wales, um, the coroner's producer report, and within the coroner's report, what they've done is they've looked for when there's announcements that are done so about prevention of future deaths that are specifically related to emergency medicine. So things like community healthcare, emergency services, and hospital-related deaths. Um, And over this period, they found 225 reports identified concerns where coroners raised concerns about care in the emergency department now if you were going to take the themes rick what do you think the top themes were
1: well i'd guess diagnosis as my first one and i'd also say something about communication if i was going to be placing a bet on this that's what i'd go for
0: so actually you're sort of right but you're sort of wrong so the top one is delay so that's delay in offloading delays you know which is not a surprise you know delays in the department delays being seen then diagnosis and then communication and then what they did they took that further and I thought what was really interesting which is why it's related to the the previous paper is they looked at the diagnoses and what were the common diagnoses that were missed Rick do you want to hazard a guess here
1: I'm going to go for myocardial infarction as my number one, but I think aortic dissection might be lurking in there somewhere.
0: So interestingly, myocardial infarction wasn't actually anywhere on this list. I was just double checking. Oh no, it is on there. There's one case, but that's right at the bottom. So the top one is an intracranial bleed followed by aortic dissection uh, and then pelvic and hip fractures and then cervical spine fractures and then DVTs And then again, a triple A rupture. So those are the top sort of five or six. So again, those those acute aortic syndromes were on top there. The other um, things to what they did as well, they looked at the communication aspect, which was one of the things that you mentioned, and that predominantly um there were 57 concerns between ed staff and external parties and this included gps ambulance services and inpatient specialties so it's a really nice little research letter that's been published it sort of um reflects probably emergency medicine practice today with you know delays communication and so forth uh, being some of the top reasons why you know, that can potentially contribute to deaths with aortic syndromes of beta to AAA or an aortic dissection, uh, you know, being in the top five reasons uh, for or delayed or missed diagnosis. And then this, you know, leads on to, you know, what is probably one of the most interesting studies that we've had so far this year, and that's the DASH study.
1: Yeah, so in the UK, we're very privileged to have the Trainee Emergency Research Network, TURN, associated with the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. And this is a network of doctors in training in emergency medicine uh, and uh, the teams that were with them. I think there are advanced practitioners and research nurses who also make really valuable contributions to this um, study. And that network has produced a load of studies now uh, that have had great impact. Uh, the DASH is the latest in that Pipeline of studies, which is looking at the diagnosis of aortic dissection. So, what TURN does or tends to do is um, point prevalence studies with large numbers at a large number of emergency departments. And that's what they've done here. So, they've recruited at 27 emergency departments in England, Scotland, and Wales. And they've recruited at each department through a period of between two and 40 days, including. Patients who attended the emergency department with a possible acute aortic syndrome. Now that's defined quite loosely. The patients had to be aged over 16 and they had to have symptoms that were compatible with an acute aortic syndrome, essentially. So they could have had chest or back pain, abdominal pain. They could have come in with a transient loss of consciousness. They could have had symptoms of malperfusion. And so they didn't actually have to sort of, the the clinicians didn't need to be necessarily pursuing the diagnosis. The patients just had to have those compatible symptoms. And I think the reason for that was that the um, investigators were aware that we missed some of these diagnoses. So if you only included the patients where the diagnosis was suspected, then we might not include everybody who would be relevant. The recruitment was a combination of prospective and retrospective So if it was done prospectively, the team collected the suspicion of aortic syndrome uh, in the opinion of the treating clinician. And if it was retrospective, they probably couldn't do that. So it was a big study. They managed to include over five and a half thousand patients. 37% of them, which was over 2000 participants in total, were recruited prospectively. Of those patients, 15% had sudden onset pain, 32% had the worst pain ever, and 34% of them had a radiating or migrating pain. Now, over 4,000 patients had the gestalt of the uh, treating physician recorded on arrival. Now, 24% of the population had a suspected diagnosis of an acute aortic syndrome. Less than half of those patients, where the diagnosis was suspected, had a CT aorta, which was quite interesting. So you'd think, if we suspect the diagnosis, we would go on and do the investigation of choice, which is a CT scan, but less than half had it, interestingly. They then looked at the prevalence of acute aortic syndrome, and of those 5,500 patients, only 14 had a final diagnosis of acute aortic syndrome, so that's 0.3% of the population. So this is really interesting because this is showing us that it's a really low prevalence condition among all the patients with suspected symptoms. But it's quite often missed. And as you mentioned in the previous paper, Sarah, it's quite often a cause of coroner's inquests because of the mortality that's associated with it. So although it's very rare, it's also very important. And that's perhaps a bad combination for us, makes it a challenging combination for us in the ED. Now, the authors had a look at diagnostic accuracy of a number of different tools. Now, bear in mind, there were only 14 patients with acute aortic syndrome. So when we look at things like sensitivity, the confidence intervals will be massive. So this study taken by itself isn't enough to tell us whether any rule-out strategy is good enough. Uh, But there's still some useful information in here. So if the clinicians thought that acute aortic syndrome was possible they had a sensitivity of 83%, far from ruling out. If they thought that acute aortic syndrome was the most likely diagnosis, the positive predictive value of that was 3.4%. <laughs> so way off being the most likely diagnosis, I think, when even though we thought it was. Uh, and if we thought that the likelihood of an acute aortic syndrome was less than 3 out of 10, actually, in this study the sensitivity was 100%. Now, bear in mind the wide confidence intervals, but it's a pretty good start. Uh, Now, they looked at some risk scores, the aortic dissection detection risk score, ADDRS. Um, It didn't have a very good sensitivity or specificity in this study, actually. And none of the risk scores that they looked at, of which there were several, would have been good enough to rule out. Now, some people might be interested in D-dimer because a lot of there's been a lot of talk of using D-dimer to rule out acute aortic syndrome. It is a marker of thrombosis, right? You know, so if you've got clot breakdown, you should have a high D-dimer. In this study, the sensitivity was only 71% using the local lab cutoff or 57% using a standard 500 nanograms per mil cutoff. So according to Dashed, D-dimer isn't ruling out acute aortic dissection at all. However, if we combine D-dimer with the aortic dissection detection risk score, then we could achieve a sensitivity of 100%, but the specificity was really low at 8%. So what does this tell us in summary? Unfortunately, it hasn't given us a tool that will say, this patient has an aortic dissection, or this patient doesn't have an aortic dissection. Uh, It shows us that it's very rare, and it shows us that when we suspect it, we're not always doing CT aorta, which is the recommended investigation. So some really interesting food for thought. I know that there's a study ongoing at the moment in Sheffield, which is looking at doing some economic modelling around this. And when you, when you add that together with the findings of DASH, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what they recommend as a, a rule out and rule in strategy and whether any patients could avoid CT scan. But uh, I found the findings really informative anyway even if they don't tell me how to rule in or rule out without a CT scan. Sarah.
0: Yeah, I was just reflecting not only on the dashed paper but the three papers that we've we've so far discussed. Um I think it's clear that, you know, and we already know this that diagnosing any aortic syndrome of any bit of it being dissected is incredibly difficult. It's probably e- a little bit easier when they're a bit sicker, but actually there's a good chunk of these patients that are probably ambulatory. Um, at the moment, there's no obvious tool to risk stratify easily. There's no obvious blood test. And, and the only real option we've got at the moment is the gold standard, which is to CTA aorta. But, you know, there's huge implications around radiation cost, our poor radiology colleagues who would get fed up if I ordered a CTA order on absolutely everyone with chest pain, and it is such a challenging diagnosis, isn't it? I mean, it's so rare, but the the stakes of it are so incredibly high. It's you know it is difficult. I think is what I'm taking away from all of these papers that we've discussed so far. I I, I don't know, is there anything else that you you thought as well, particularly in the context of these three papers?
1: I think in the context of these three papers and what we know about this condition, my take-home message is, very simple. We need to have a low threshold for proceeding to a CT aorta in these patients. And that doesn't mean that you do a CT scan on everybody by any means, because in most patients, you're going to find an alternative cause for the patient's symptoms. But we've got to be always considering aortic dissection, even in patients with atypical or unusual symptoms, where we haven't got a diagnosis and there's an ongoing suspicion. Don't be reticent to use CT aorta as the reference standard test, because you don't want to be missing one of those 12.5% of aortic acute aortic syndromes that we are currently missing.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think um, you've hit the nail on the head there, isn't it? It's difficult. Let's not scan everyone, but keep your differentials wide and expect the unexpected.
1: Absolutely. So our final paper for today is changing topic a little bit. It's about Patients with isolated orthopaedic trauma, elderly patients, older adults, and it's about predicting adverse outcome in those patients. And that's quite an important question, I think, Sarah, because we know that older adults who are admitted with trauma orthopaedic injuries quite often develop adverse outcomes when they're in hospital. So it's quite important to be able to predict that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So this um, by our Canadian colleagues, uh, titled Predictors of Adverse Outcomes in Elders Hospitalised for Isolated Orthopaedic Trauma, a Multi-Centre Cohort Study. And the first author here is Isaac. So as Rick has said, we see an increasing amount of older adults Um, And in Canada now, which probably mirrors our population as well, you know, patients greater than 64 years old now represent more than 51%, so more than half of injury hospitalizations in Canada. So we need to understand what that means and what that entails, as Rick was saying. And, And so what they did, they took a they did a multi-centre retrospective cohort study between the 1st of April 2013 to the 31st of March 2019. So a really good chunk of six years where they had nineteen, just over 19,000 people that they were able to look at. So what did they do and, and what does this mean for us? So Rick, before I go into talking a little bit more about the results... What do you think are risk factors for adverse outcomes with isolated injuries in the older adult?
1: Well, okay... I'm going to guess the obvious ones first. I think the older you are, the more likely you are to have an adverse outcome. I think the more comorbidities you have, the more likely you are to have an adverse outcome. I'm interested to know whether they picked up any on any acute factors. For example, were there any physiological parameters like the heart rate, the presenting rhythm? I don't know if they looked at them, but in my experience, things like the, whether the patient's got... Uh, atrial fibrillation with a rapid ventricular rate might predict adverse outcome but what did they look at
0: so they looked um at age obviously because this is an age study uh and the biggest group uh actually were the over 85s so 40 percent were over 85 which is an astonishing and then the other sort of uh, groups were all around the sort of 12 13 percent marks they looked at all the comorbidities so everything from alcoholism through to inflammatory bowel disease parkinson's disease copd and they looked at that around sort of independence steroids obesity those sort of things they tried to ascertain how many comorbidities people had uh, which bit was injured How many fractures and were there any sort of, you know, other injuries that were were alongside it? And they looked at the mechanism of injury as well. And would it be surprising to you, Rick, to find out that the most common mechanism of injury is falling from standing height?
1: Not at all, because that's the bread and butter, isn't it? That reflects my experience, Absolutely.
0: Yeah, so absolutely. So 70% of these fell from standing height. But going back to the results and the sort of questions that you were thinking about and asking, they didn't look at the acute stuff. So heart rate and and, and what have you. So what they found was that of that population, just for interest, 70% were female and 40% were male more more of them were over 75 uh, sorry 85 years of old and the most common comorbidities were hypertension coronary artery disease dementia and diabetes with unsurprisingly hip fracture and a lower limb fracture being the most common orthopedic injuries and this whilst this has been done in Canada this mirrors probably the UK very well it certainly mirrors my emergency department and I'd imagine it mirrors yours as well rick
1: yeah absolutely
0: so um, what they found was when they were trying to look at adverse, inc- uh, adverse outcomes, they looked at composite outcomes and they found that increasing age, tick, well done, Rick. So age, male sex, and there were certain comorbidities that they found that contributed to a, a worse or less favourable outcome. So this include alcoholism, cirrhosis, Complicated diabetes, malignancy, dementia, psychiatric disease, heart failure, Parkinson's disease, COPD, obesity, and loss of independence. Also, the number of comorbidities, which is I think what you mentioned there as well, Rick, so more comorbidities, Interestingly, the type of orthopaedic injury as well. So those with hip fractures, lower limb fractures, pelvic ring fractures or spinal fractures really played into that. Things around, you know, the severity of the injury, head injuries. And interestingly, which I'm not sure I was thought of before, but if they'd had an admission in the preceding year before, they were at an increased odds of an adverse outcome according to the composite outcome that they did. What do you think of that so far, Rick? Is that surprising?
1: No, it's not surprising. And I mean, one of the interesting things I draw out of that is that those injuries that predicted out for adverse outcome are all things that I might expect would affect your mobility. There were lower limb fractures, spinal fractures where patients might be immobilised and have bed rest, for example. I, I just wonder if that sort of immobilisation might have something to do with the uh, adverse events that occurred.
0: Yeah, and I think it's difficult to to know that because that's probably the, beyond the scope of this paper. But I think, you know, what's really useful about this study and what I will take away from it, you know, when I go to work this evening is, you know, actually these low energy standing height falls, uh, the mo- more comorbidities you've got, particularly if you're male and you're older, the less likely you are to do well from these and you're more likely to potentially die or increase your care needs going forward. And whilst that's not surprising probably to lots of our listeners, I think it's really important for us to remember this, that what seems like a, you know, just a pubic rami fracture or just an ankle injury that can take somebody who is fully independent to sometimes bedbound and all the consequences and sequelae of that.
1: Absolutely. I think that's a really good way to frame the take-home message from this paper, actually.
0: So that is the end of our selection of our four papers. Three around aortic syndromes um, with one touching upon you know outcomes from coroner's inquests and then we've ended on our you know what happens to the older adults with an isolated orthopedic trauma multi-center cohort study. I look forward to seeing you all next time Rick.
1: Yeah me too and uh, hope your night shift goes well Sarah.
0: Yeah thanks very much and we'll see you soon.
1: See you soon.